In my guest's seven-decade career, he has written for some of the most famous shows in television history. Emmy winners He and She, The Andy Griffith Show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and his own creation, Love American Style, for which he won an Emmy. He has worked with the Smothers Brothers, Andy Griffith, Mary Tyler Moore, Danny Thomas, George Siegel, and Robert Mitchum. It is a pleasure to introduce Mr. Arnold Marvelin. Thank you. First question I always ask people is, you're from Chicago, Illinois, or a suburb? Okay. Okay. Uh, I was born in Rock Island, Illinois, left as an infant and grew up and was raised in the rest in Dallas, Texas. Okay. And you were a child of the radio. radio. Uh, yes. I, 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 I definitely listened to a lot of radio. What were your favorite radio programs? Uh, Little Orphan Annie. Um... Fibber McGee and Molly, let's see, oh, uh, Fred Allen, and uh, Captain Midnight, okay. which I got a decoder ring. Do you remember the first time you saw television? I believe I do. We got it kind of late in Dallas. Uh, I mean, it had already been on, I think it was around 1953. Uh and uh, actually, the first thing I remember seeing, uh, my parents made me watch it, <laughs> was Milton Berle, uh, his comedy hour, and of course then the show shows, um, and the, the McCarthy hearings. <laughs> then I went off uh, to New York, um, and... Uh, didn't watch much TV there till a few years later, and then I uh, I would watch the uh, Steve Martin, that's Steve, Steve Allen show, the Variety show. Yeah. And what did you go to? Did you go to college? I did. I uh, spent a year at SMU in Dallas, then I transferred to Columbia in New York City. And I went there for two and a half years before I dropped out. Uh, and I was busy working a couple of jobs in the theater and a night job and a day job and no time for school. So I'm not, I'm a college dropout. You did well, though. Thank you. So when did you get into the entertainment industry full time? Well, I was very fortunate. I, uh, when I was going to Columbia, I had a, a friend who was a guy I met who lived in Brooklyn, but he, he was kind of a, a uh, idiot savant. He knew everything in the world about Broadway and the theater, but a very dysfunctional person. <laughs> he couldn't get along with anybody. I was the only guy who could get along with him. Anyway, he introduced me to a lot of people in the theater. One of them was a a man named Robert Fryer, who was a Broadway producer, and eventually he hired me as an office boy. Uh, at the same time, uh, while I was a student at Columbia, some graduate students uh, were producing a uh, off-off Broadway show, three one-act plays by William Soroy, and Soroy was going to participate. So I was. They wanted me to be the assistant stage manager. So I said, great, I was 19 or 19. What I learned after 
job is that I had to understudy one of the actors in the show. And I'd never been an actor. I'd been in a couple of school plays, but that was it. Um, but at any rate, he was young and healthy, and I didn't think there would be a problem. And then a week before the show opened, he got a Broadway show. The guy was understudy. And he left. They didn't have time to cast anyone else. So I went on and did the show for three weeks and it closed. And then I went back to my, or at the same time, because I, I was doing both jobs, I went back to my job as an office boy for Bob Fryer and uh, went out of town with a Broadway show and did the whole theatrical thing. And the show came to town, it was a big flop. And uh, I was out of work. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I had a, a call on my answering machine um, from my aunt. Oh, excuse me, not answering machines, answering service. And they said uh, Garson Kanan called. I didn't know Garson Kanan. I knew who he was, this big writer, producer, director. I had no idea what he wanted. I figured that my former employee had recommended me for a job as an office boy. So I called back and they said, oh yes, Mr. Kanan would like to see you tomorrow at the court theater. I never even asked what it was. I just assumed it was an office boy. So I went down there and there were a bunch of guys standing around looking at scripts and I told the stage manager, oh, I'm here for meeting with Mr. Kanan and my name's Arnold Margolin. And he said, oh my gosh, he said, Kanan's been looking for you for six months. Well, uh, here I am. I, I don't know why he would be looking for me. He said, well, he saw you acting in an off-Broadway play, and he wants you to read for this part in the show. I guess he'd seen me in the off-Broadway show in the, in the three weeks it ran. Uh, so I got called on stage, and uh, he told me about, because we opened the night of a blizzard, he didn't want to go. Ruth Gordon, his wife, insisted they go because Sir Royan was a friend of theirs. And uh, he saw me and he remembered me. And when he, the show, uh, the show he was talking about was Diary of Anne Frank, which had opened on Broadway. And the fellow playing uh, the part of Peter, the young boy, had gotten drafted fairly quickly after they opened. So they were looking for a replacement. And he remembered seeing me. And he couldn't find me anywhere because I wasn't a member of equity. And finally, he was reading a review of this musical that I had been on. And there in the little box with the credits, he saw assistant to the producer, Colonel Margolin. So that's how he called me. I said, I don't think I want this job. I've never acted. I, you know, I'm apprenticing the manager's union. I said, well, you'll never get another chance to act on Broadway. Well, you're right. So the stage manager said, would you like him to read now? And he said, no, he wants the part, it's his. So I ended up on Broadway in a hit show uh, for a year uh, and discovered I really didn't want to be an actor. Uh, so uh, that's that's how I got launched in, in the theater. Anyway. And how about television? I had worked my way. I was doing a lot of stage managing. Uh, and I was working as a casting director, but I felt I kind of hit a ceiling. There was nowhere else for me to go uh, in, in the theater. 
and I had a wife and two kids by then. I wanted to get out of New York. And I had some good friends who'd gone to what I had helped get started as writers. And they were now going to the West Coast to write a comedy series by the name Gary Marshall and his partner, Fred Freeman. And they kept saying, come to LA, you'll get something. So my wife and I and my kids, we moved to LA and I couldn't get arrested. Uh, but I, I finally got jobs in the business as an executive here and there. And then uh, Gary Marshall basically said, you want to be a writer? I said, why not? And uh, he got me started comedy writing. Then we worked together and uh, that's how. And, and then we- I, they said, oh, you need a partner if you're going to be a comedy writer. I said, I don't know anybody. And Jerry said, oh, I have a friend. He just got fired from his job. <laughs> He'd like to be a comedy writer. So they called him up and he came over and uh, and they said, okay, uh, Jim Parker, this is Arnold Margolin. Arnold Margolin, this is Jim Parker, your partners. And that's, that's how we started. And was the first thing that you worked on okay, Crackerby? No, the first thing was my mother, the car. Uh, we went in, we pitched a story because I had met uh, the associate producer a year or so before and uh, called him and got a meeting. And we were going in to pitch. We really didn't have anything that we were in love with. And that morning, I was waiting for my partner to pick me up. I was flipping through the TV guide and I read us, they used to have little log lines about what the shows were about. This was a show where some woman gets amnesia and i thought oh that's it so we pitched mother gets bumped in the parking lot on a bumper and we deserve memory. and that launches we did a bunch of those then we did okay crafter because it was the same executive producer that first season we wrote like 17 episodes for different shows none of which had another season for all flops we didn't really know what we were doing but we were you know, happy to be working. And the next year, uh, Gary Marshall and Jerry took us because they had a new show called A Landlord. They wanted us to write for it. But they said, let us teach you a little bit about writing. And they spent a day with us and then we were off on our own. And we worked for them and eventually they worked for us. And we worked for each other. And it was that way for the rest of their lives. I actually, all of your Hey Landlord episodes are on YouTube, and I saw the one Sizzling Sydney. Oh, yes, with Bob, with uh, Mar- Marge, Hal Marge. Yes, and... Yes, and you, I was in it. And yourself as Arnold. Yes, right. Yes, right. I, the only person who ever hired me in television was Gary, because he'd seen me in Diary. Nobody else knew I had been an actor. And a, and a couple of occasions I hired myself, but I always felt guilty about taking jobs from actors. So I think I only did that once or twice. And your, one of your episodes of My Mother the Car featured Lee Van Cleef and Charles Grodin. Really? Yeah, it wow. was called Burned at the Stake. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, tw- uh, and, and I knew Charles, I checked pretty well. But I, I never realized that. And I, you know, the first time I saw Lee Van Cleef in a Western, a spaghetti Western, 
I said, boy, he looks familiar. That's probably why. <laughs> what was it like coming into the Andy Griffith show? It was a real uh, good lesson in for, for my partner, for Jim and I, comedy writing. Because up to that point, we had basically been joke writers. We started out, our, we became a team just writing jokes for comics and doing a lot of jokes. So the way they ran the Andy Griffith room uh, was they'd have five teams come in at a meeting for a week. You'd be there every day for a week. And at the end of the week, all five teams, each one would leave with a story. And everybody pitched on everybody else's story. And Andy would come in from time to time and hear what we came up with. And he was great because he would say, oh, Anthony can't do that. Or Howard the Barber, you can only have him standing up for a minute because he has a bad back. And all of these little hints that were very helpful about what the cast could do and couldn't do. Um, and and the other very helpful uh, person, uh, well, it was Bob Ross, who was the producer. Um, but it was a, it was very friendly, and we so we wrote we had, we did five episodes that year. We wrote one, and we sent the script in. They said, "Oh, we love it." It came back for us to do the rewrite, and all the jokes have been cut. So we the second thing script that happened. The third, all every time we sent in the script, they'd say they loved it, but they take all the jokes. Out. And finally, what we realized is we weren't too quick on the update, but we looked at the show and and they didn't do jokes. And it was and then when the first time we really discovered that you could do comedy without writing jokes if you had the if you had the great characters who had attitudes that made them funny. So it was a, it was a good lesson in in comedy. Although most every other show we wrote for wanted jokes. But uh, later when I was doing feature writing, it, it came in very helpful. Was that the year that Jack Burns came in? I think it was. It was also the first year. Oh, gosh, I made some notes so I wouldn't forget these things. Uh, that uh, Jack Dobson. As Howard Sprague, on. yes. Yes. Uh, that, I, that was his first year because because uh, Barney was gone. And Gomer was gone. So a lot of the comedy strength of the early shows was, was no longer there. Uh, so we, we may do with some lesser characters. Yeah. Then you wrote for a show, He and She. Yes, I did. One of my proudest achievements. And it was a show that won the best show Emmy after it was already canceled. Yes. In fact, they, when the head of the guy who was, I think his name was Michael Dan, was head of CBS programming, said, this is the best show we've ever canceled. <laughs> and it didn't have bad ratings. But, of course, there were only three shows at, at a the time. There were only three networks. And we had like a 30 share. So we didn't quite have a third of the audience. And we learned later that the network didn't care for Dick Benjamin too Jewish. Uh, but it was a great show. Um, we got nominated for a Writers Guild uh, Award, I think, uh, uh, 
Alan Burns and Chris Hayward actually might have won it that year. I'm not sure. They got nominated. It got nominated for, out of the five nominations. Three of them were for Ian Sheep. So it was a it was a show that made everyone's career. Uh, Jake Sandridge was the director, and uh, and and Alan Burns and, and, and his partner uh, at the time went on, and of course Alan ended up doing the Mary Tyler Moore show. And once again, uh, your episodes are on YouTube. So, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And I was able to, yeah, you know, and I was able to see uh, the one that you got nominated for a Writers Guild Award for, where she thinks he, because he had a checkup and wrote his will that he's dying. Yes, right. Before you bury me, say. Before you say. Before you bury me, say something or something like that. I right. Remember the titles. Yeah. Yeah, they were great to write for. That was a that was a terrific show, and I had worked with Jack Cassidy, who was wonderful uh, on Broadway. He had, that first show that I went out of town with as an office boy, he was in the cast of that, and we become friends. Then. So it was it was everybody was terrific, uh, and so uh, it was it was a pleasure to do. It was unfortunately. Just then the next year, um, you created your own show, Love American Style. Yeah, that was a couple years later, yeah. But, um, uh, because we from there we went to Disney, we wrote a couple of screenplays for them, uh, and they wanted us to say we it was was like another world at Disney because this was right after Walt had died and. It wasn't the studio it is today. It was a sleepy little studio, and and they brought my partner and I, Jim, in because in those days we both had, you know, hard to believe, long hair, a lot of hair, long hair, beards. We were. They brought us in to be the the studio hippies. <laughs> we would write something that would, you know, get them out of the uh, love bug uh, syndrome, and of course we did, and then. They completely rewrote it and made it fill up, you know, on skis or something like Snowball that. Express. Yes, right. Yeah, another Dean Jones movie. Right. But then we went. Then we they said you, we could stay there for life, and we said, look, we'd love to come back when we retire. So uh, we went back to TV, and Love American Style was it was a unique series uh, and. There certainly wasn't every, anything like it before, and I don't think anybody has successfully done it, an anthology with multiple episodes since then. No. Was this, was your idea to do a comedic version of, like, the Alfred Hitchcock show or Twilight Zone? No. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story. We went to Paramount to do a pilot of Houseboat, the old Cary Grant and it had a guaranteed on the air for 13 episodes. So we said, great. So we started writing that pilot. And uh, we had, we wrote it and then they ordered the pilot. So we shot in Sausalito, California. And then we came back and we were waiting for the film to be assembled. They came to the executives at Paramount, Tom Miller, 
there's been many Gary Marshall shows. And the studio uh, boss, Doug uh, Kramer, came and said, Barry uh, Diller, who was at ABC at the time, uh, had just uh, created this idea. He's going to do 90-minute movies every week. And we just sold him an idea for, him, for a TV movie called Love American Style, which will have three separate love stories in it. Just as a 90-minute movie, there's no talk of a series. And we would like you to write one of the episodes while you're waiting uh, to get going on. So we said, fine. Because they, they had already had one episode written, which they didn't like. And they had another one that they didn't have a writer. So we wrote one uh, quickly, and they loved it. And they said, oh, we want you to be the executive producers of the series and rewrite the show that we don't like and then find us writers for this other one. So we took over running the show and the movie at that point. We got some friends of ours in New York to write one episode. We wrote one and then we rewrote the one they didn't hear. And then we we thought we need something in between the episodes, some kind of glue, you know, and so we just started creating these little romantic scenes and and gary marshall who as i said was our friend he said hey what if you did one with you know where the guy puts up hanging so it was a joke so we said okay we, and we realized that's what we needed we needed gags in between the episodes so we credited gary with creating that aspect but then that was just the movie and we i um I took the movie to the, no, no, excuse me. While we were waiting to edit the movie, ABC was in a lot of trouble, which they were a lot of those years. They were the distant third network. And somebody at the studio, and I don't even remember if I even know who it was or who it was, and they said, you know, ABC's in such trouble, maybe you should cut the movie down to an hour version and see if they'll buy it as a series. Which we thought was ridiculous, but that, you know, no one ever done that before. So, but then the studio said, yeah, go ahead. You know, won't cost that much. So we edited it down to an hour. Um, we didn't put a laugh track on it. I took it to New York and I showed it to the executives from Paramount. And oh my God, it was dead. <laughs> the lights went up, and I I wanted to run out of the room. I said before I, before I said it, they said anything. I said I know I'm going back to LA. I'm going to put a laugh track on it, change the music, and I'll be back. This was on a Friday. I'll be back Monday. So I called my people in in LA and my partner, who wasn't with me because he didn't fly, <laughs> and so I said. You know, get us a sound stage, get Charlie to write some music here and there, and get the laugh track guy. And we redid it. I went flew back with a film, and that's in the days when it was a big film can, so I was lugging them on the plane. You could probably wouldn't be allowed to do it today. But uh, I uh, came back, left it, and sure enough, it, it sold as a series. Everybody, we, we shared offices with uh, Mission Impossible. They were upstairs in this building and we were downstairs. And so they used to call us Love Impossible because uh, nobody could figure out how we were ever going to do 
season. We did 24 hours. Uh, it was just Jim and I and one team of writers, uh, staff, and then we everything else was freelance, which was possible because you didn't have running characters, so you didn't have to make every show conform to those particular characters. And um, it became uh, successful. And much to our surprise at everyone else's. And it was nominated for Best Comedy Series, and you won an twice. Emmy twice, yeah. and you won an Emmy for Theme Song. That's right, yeah. Charlie Fox and I uh, wrote the theme song, and, uh, and we still get little residual checks for it. <laughs> and where do you keep your uh, Emmy? It's right over here somewhere. It's back behind this bookcase. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little uh, rusty in parts because uh, I lived at the beach for a long time, and that's sea air is not good for uh, Emmy statuettes. <laughs> Was the Star Spangled Girl for Disney? No, the Star Spangled Girl was for Paramount. It was uh, not a good experience. Um, we had wanted to do a pilot. It, it was basically, they gave us that movie to write to get us to come back and do another a third year of love. And so um, we, we read it and we said, this is, it's about an underground newspaper. So it should be, this was 1970, could be, uh, you know, have a certain amount of uh, hot heat to it, uh, sex, nothing. And, you know, Neil Simon is a very funny guy, but he didn't write 1970s uh, comedies. So they said, well, do what you want. And so we did. We wrote our script, and we were very pleased with it. They ordered it to be shot. And then we, two weeks before we were to shoot, we got a call from the studio. Uh, Doc Simon would like to meet with you guys. And he was not happy with the script. Of course, it wasn't his anymore and uh, so he said well he was going to do the rewrite and uh and uh, but he wanted us to keep the credit he didn't want it and we were so young and stupid that we said yes so he did a rewrite it's not it went back to the play basically the movie was a bomb and, and we got the bad reviews uh so that's the way it goes you know um but uh it was uh, it was an interesting experience, and that—that uh, that was it. That was the end of basically the end of our feature writing career because uh, it, it, uh, you can write at least one more. But if you're a TV writer and you write a bomb, you're pretty much dead. At least in those days, that's where it was. So we went back. And you wrote a Mary Tyler Moore show. Well, we wrote one episode. It was just because it was a spinoff for a new series. Uh, we were very close with Alan Burns and, and Jim Brooks because Alan had been one of the co-creators of My Mother the Car. And it was the first show like us that Jim Brooks had ever written. Although I don't think it's probably on his resume anymore. Uh, but... Uh, uh, so 
we had stayed good friends with them. And in fact, we, we got some writers started for them uh, that they then took to continue some American more. Because with our show, with Low American Style, you could gamble. You could bring in a new writer and write a 10-minute episode. It was a disaster. You could fix it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to kill your whole week. Um, and so they had a spinoff they wanted to do with Tim Connolly. So they wanted us to write that, and that's what we wrote. But what we discovered is when you do a spinoff in a, on that particular show, we had to service all the other regular characters and try to introduce Tim Conway and the two women in his show. And it was, it was a mission. I mean, they made it, they shot it, it ran as an episode of where he got it more, but it, it shouldn't have been a series. So that was one of the original backdoor pilots, as they call them? Uh, I guess it was, yeah. I mean, we had, at that point, no, we hadn't done uh, Happy Days yet on Love. Uh, yeah. So, yes. And then Tim Conway got replaced with Bill Daly somewhere? No. For Bill Daly's in the episode. Tim Conway didn't do the episode? No, it was uh, Bill Daly from I Dream of Genie. Wow. Well, I guess he did then. I didn't even know that. I didn't I yeah. never watch it. I was embarrassed by it, so I didn't need to see it. You did a bunch of pilots that, that aired. Uh, one called Harry and Maggie with Don Knotts. Yeah, it was Don Knotts and Eve Arden. And it was, a I thought, one of our better scripts. And, and, and we thought we, and we did. We had a great cast. Those two and uh, Tom Poston also. Oh. But it was about, um, Don played a Midwestern, I think he owned a hardware store. Typical Babbitt, uh, Midwesterner. And he had a teenage daughter who was not terribly attractive. And Eve Arden was, he was a widow. Eve Arden was the sister of his late wife. And she had been a, she was an anti-Maine kind of character living in Europe. She came back, decided to move in and help him raise his daughter. So it was the conflict between this kind of madcap Eve Arden character and this very conservative Don Knotts. It tested well. I, we never did. We never did learn why it did so. It tested well. Uh, somebody, you know, I've been on. I had another pilot I made where it tested well and was on the schedule, and then at the last minute, the, the head of programming decided uh, Joe Flavor wasn't pretty enough. So <laughs> these these are the way that things go, you know. Uh, the sure things never get on. <laughs> yeah. But the orphan and the dude. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that much of it, except it was a fun script. And we had two wonderful actors. It was, and I don't even remember the premise that well, except it was Oliver Clark, who was a, and a, and a guy named Art Evans. And he came from the ghetto. He's kind of a ghetto. Oliver was more straight-laced. Beyond that, I don't remember anything about it. We made it at the same time we were do, 
doing um, Harry and Meg. We had two pilots going at the same time, mm. which is finally what led to uh, Jim and I breaking up because he never really enjoyed producing. He liked just writing, and, and I loved producing. Uh, and it, he just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to quit for a while. And then he came back just as a single writer. And we eventually worked on a couple of things together in State Prince. Passed away a couple of years ago. You were a producer for the McLean Stevenson show. Yes. That was probably one of the low points of my career. McLean Stevenson, uh, it was a show that had already shot like seven or eight episodes. And they shut down and uh, they called me to come on and, and take it over. And I said, oh, I looked at the show and I said, okay, if I can replace the two kids. And they said, you can replace one. And so I got to replace one of the children. Um, you know, there, not everybody can be the star of a series. There's a certain, you're the, you're, you know, you're the captain of the team. You set, whether it's good or bad, you set the pace, you set the tone of how the show was run. And people can turn to you, even if you don't know what you're doing. And if you act like you do, they'll pay attention to you in terms of the other actors. He was so incredibly insecure that he could never do that. And I begged him, please, you know, this is what you need to do. He just, he couldn't accept the responsibility of being the star of the series. And in fact, one episode was a shot in front of a live audience. Fortunately, it was close to the end of the time it was shooting. He stopped the show in the middle of shooting and said to the audience, I'm sorry, you'll all have to leave. <laughs> so we basically had to send all these people home and then shoot the show without an audience. I, I've never heard of anything like that before, but it, I don't know that it was any good anyway. I, I tried my best. Uh, I had a great staff of writers uh, and I had, a, had some real pros who I'd worked with before. I had a brand new kid that I actually took out of school. I got him to quit UCLA and go and work for me. I read a sample script of his. He's now still, he's the only person I know who's still active with the business. He was a producer on the, Moms for seven years, and now he's on a new series, Sheldon Bull. That was his first show. Oh, Sheldon Bull, so yes. Yeah, I have really good people. And he, and he just made the show impossible. And that worked finally, you know, understandably, he just got tired of, of dealing. And then you got three more chances. Ah, uh, I, I know you got at least two more, yeah. Because he'd already done Hello Larry or whatever, something. Well, he did the McLean Stevenson show. Then he did a show called In the Beginning, where he was a conservative priest and there was a hip nun. Oh, I didn't know that show. Then Hello, Larry. And then he did a show called Condo, which is basically, it was like Romeo and Juliet. Oh. And he was the up, he was like the upper crust elite and his neighbors were Puerto Rican nouveau riche and the son falls in love with the Puerto Rican daughter. So, you know. 
It's as bad as it sounds. Maybe he's Irish Rose, right? Okay. Yeah. Now, there's a show that you worked on that I've also talked to Mark Rothman. And called Walk- no. Mark Rothman. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Called Walkin' Walter. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't even want to tell me what it was. He was like, oh, forget about that. <laughs> well, it's too bad that they, they, all, they all didn't say that at the time before we did it. It, it was Michael Eisner was at ABC at the time, and he, I guess they used this guy, Walking Walter. That was his stage name, an older black man. Um, and he used him in some show, and Michael Eisner fell in love with him and wanted to make a pilot with him. So they had done a script. I think, I think, uh, Mark Rothman and his and Logan and Logan's. Yeah, Gans, Law Gans. And then they called me in, oh, and it, it, yeah, it was not a good year. This was right after the McLean Stevenson mm-hmm. uh, And, and uh, I really didn't like directing, but they wanted me to direct it and, and do a polish on it. So I came in and, and I had a wonderful, again, a really good cast of people who went on and did wonderful things on other shows. And Walkin' Walter was a really a character. He was a, a vaudevillian, basically. Mm. Uh, and uh, so um, we, we did the pilot, and it, it, it was, it, it just, it didn't make a series. No. It didn't, it, was, it really didn't have, and it had a lot, you know, Gary was the executive producer, and Miller and Milkus were, so we had a lot of heavyweights sitting there wringing their hands, and they buried, basically, Michael Eisner said, do a pilot with this guy, and that they tried to, and it just didn't work. And I don't even remember what the premise was. Dooley Brothers was another pilot? Yeah. Uh, wonderful pilot, one camera action comedy. That was uh, Shelley Long's first job in uh, Hollywood. She was the maiden in distress. Um, it was, and it's when I started learning to write alone because I had never written without Jim. So when we split up, I was too afraid to write alone. I didn't, I didn't think I could do it. And I, so I, but I had this uh, premise that I had developed for a series and I sold it with two other uh, young writers who, who protégés of mine and they were going to do the pilot. And the, it was, it was a wonderful, it was kind of a anthology, but with the same cast. But it, the Dooley Brothers were two fictional characters created by this guy who wrote dime novels. It was set in the Old West, but this guy in St. Louis wrote dime novels. But he also sent, uh, because he had these two well-known characters who would go into a town like Lance, balance, uh, you know, Jack, and be uh, have gun will travel, uh, and they'd clean up a town or they'd get rid of the bad guys. Whatever they were really, they were. But he, but he, but nobody else realizes it was franchising it. So he had six teams of Dooley brothers going through the West, and this particular team was his nephew and his friend, and they were fuck ups. 
So they're sent to this town to, it, it was a takeoff on high noon where there was a sheriff and he'd sent this gang to prison 30 years ago. And now the gang was getting out of prison and they were coming back to get their revenge. Shelly Long was the sheriff's uh, uh, daughter. And uh, Sheriff, he was 30 years old. He, he was blind by now. He had a seeing eye coat. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so it was the boys' adventure trying to stop this gang. And of course, what happens is the gang finally shows up. Of course, they're all old men, too. They can't. So they start a gunfight. Of course, they're shooting their, at everything else in town except each other. Um, but it was, and there was a scene. You know, there were, we had big block comedy scenes. There was a big scene where one brother gets thrown in jail and the other goes to break him out. And like the old fashioned Westerns, we spoofed a lot of the stuff where he ties ropes to the bars in the, in, in the jail cell. He's going to tie him up to a team of horses only, only can get her two mules. So he ties them up and they don't, they pull the bars, but they pull the whole cell out of the building. So the mules go running off into the desert, pulling the cell behind him. It was a, it was a huge stunt. The point was, the show cost money for and there was no way that CBS was going to pay to to do this kind of a show on a, on a weekly basis. So I always thought, you know, they should try it and do it as a as a feature, uh, but it died. It died another death. Uh, and uh, that's that was the story of the uh, of the Dooley brothers. That sounds like a show I would watch. That sounds really yeah. funny. <laughs> it, we had some great stories about where they lead a instead of a cattle drive, they're driving a herd of chickens across <laughs> the you know and fighting all the same battles. So well, there were a lot of wonderful takeoff spoof spoofy kind of stories you could do. Uh, ever got to see it? It was, but at any rate, oh, I started to say, so I had hired these two young guys to write the script. And at the last minute, they had, they, a pilot they'd written the year before got an order. So they had to go and do this series. It took precedent. So suddenly I had sold a script and I didn't have anybody to write it. And I called Jim, my old partner, and I said, you got to come and write this script. And he said, no, no. He said, you can write it. I said, no, I can't. He said, okay, you write a first draft, and then I'll come in and help you do the second. So I felt, you know, I had a, a floor under me. So I wrote a first draft, and I sent it to him. And he called me and said, this is fine. You don't need me. So that's how I discovered that I could write on my own. I probably still be just produced it. Do you know if that ever aired as like a, a they burnt it off in the summer or? I don't. I don't know. It was for it, uh, CBS. You worked on Private Benjamin the series. Uh, boy, you're really good at picking the ones that hit a nerve. Ooh, <laughs> uh, that one. I know. I spent a year there. I was hired. Um. They had two stars, and both of them were problems. 
Eileen Breda was probably the worst problem because I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but hell with <laughs> uh, she she was I think mentally it was either drugs or mental problems I don't know which she was different and then Lorna Patterson who played Brother Benjamin well she saw Eileen misbehaving and that's what happens uh, so they would keep shutting down production so they would just go to their dressing room so they needed somebody on the set so I was hired to be the on-set producer and whenever there was a problem I would ameliorate or negotiate or write a new scene or whatever but it, we keep the show going and that's and that's what happened but then toward the I think we had one more show to do and uh, I mean was a victim in a car accident she got hit by a car coming out of a restaurant and they immediately called me and wanted to know where I was at the time. They suspected I was the person at the wheel. <laughs> but uh, I assured them I wasn't. Um, and then the series, I think they tried it with one other woman, and then it didn't work. That was the end of the show. Hal Williams seems like he was a nice guy, though. Hal Williams was great. And I did another show with him. I can't even remember which one it was. He was a lot of fun to work with. Um, and, uh, and Wendy, Wendy Jo Sperber, mm. uh, she was fine. She was good. Um, and, and Lorna, you know, finally settled down. She turned out to be fine. You could talk to her. You, you couldn't talk to her. Is Growing Pains an okay subject to talk about? Yes, it's a great <laughs> subject. Okay. Uh, that was really fun for me because I came in the first season uh i was i had been the mentor of uh, neil marlins and carol black who created that show actually well they created it and the network was nervous about them being the producers and so they said to me they said two things one we want you to come and help us do the show and two we want you to marry us so I got I got a license to marry them, and I married the two of them, and then I produced the first season. I mean, they were the executive producers. Uh, they had a lot of problems with the network, and they eventually left toward the end of the first season. When they left, I went with them because I was only there to help them out. But we had a good experience up to then, and doing the I was there for doing the pilot. And Alan Thick was Alan Thick, the luckiest man in show business. <laughs> Actually, he was okay. He was he was fine to work with. He was not a problem. Though. And then, of course, Kirk uh, Cameron was suddenly the surprise star. Became the star of the show. Everybody knew he was special, but they didn't know that was going to happen. But um, I enjoyed working on the show. Uh, and, uh, it was a pleasant experience. If, if Neil and Carol had uh, stayed, I would have stayed. But uh, they didn't, and I had other things to do. So. Now, they, they uh, created the Wonder Years, right? 
Rogers and what's her name? The woman who has a daytime talk show right now. Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres, right? Right, okay. Oh, so she, they, they, they created Ellen. Okay. Yeah. Um, you work with Marlo Thomas when you wrote That Girl. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you worked with Danny Thomas. That's on, right. On One Big Family. Yes. It was much more fun working with Marlo. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, she was... I mean, it was interesting to watch it. We, we were just writers, and we weren't producing the show. Um, we wrote the script that actually became the, the show that premiered the series. Billy Bursky and Sam Deno had created the series and had written a pilot, but uh, there was no show that introduced Don into the, into the series. So we wrote the episode where she meets Don. That became the first episode on the air and then I think we did a couple other episodes that year and then the following year we did a two-parter and we were going to do more but that's when we got the he and she gig so that was a staff job so we took that in the first season episode of that girl um there was an episode that you wrote that the guest stars were Sally Kellerman and and George Carlin That. He played her manager in the first season. Oh, wow. I, I didn't remember that. But Sal, I knew Sally. So, uh, yeah, uh, she was a good friend of my brothers. And she, she was a little bit miscast in that part, but it was fine. And, you know, Marlo, you know, Marlo was great. She was the boss. I mean, she ran that show. Uh, and we used to kid Ted Bessel that he had the best known uh, back of the ear in America. That's all you saw it was in the two shots on the back of his ear. Uh, but uh, I like a show where people are, you know, if I'm not running it, somebody else is running it and knows what they're doing. And uh, she, she knew what she was doing. You wrote an episode of Webster. No. No, that's not, that's not true. Okay. No, I, I never, I all, the only role I served on Webster was to be a, the psychiatrist to the executive producer who was driven crazy and used to come and cry <laughs> in my office. And that was a syndicated so, show by then, right? Pardon? That was syndicated by that time. That was not on the network. Webster was, I don't even remember when that was. Was that in the late 70s? Uh, no, uh, mid to late 80s. Mid to late 80s. It was that late. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, um, they had had, uh, well, the problem was that, that, uh, the two adult stars of the show, Susan Clark and, and uh, the football player, Alex Karras, Alex Karras were the stars, but of course the kid was the one getting all the kudos. So they were always trying to sabotage the kid. <laughs> And causing problems, uh, and, uh, and my friend Bill D'Angelo, who was running the show, uh, had, had a hard time. And there was a lot of drug use on the show as well uh, that caused problems on the writing staff. 
that's so weird. When I talk to writers, shows that I would think had drug problems didn't, and shows that you would never think would have a lot of drugs in the like Webster, a kid yeah. show. You wouldn't think Webster would have a lot of drug drugs in the office. Yeah. Don't you yeah. Think? yeah, you would think Love American Style would have a lot of drug problems. <laughs> Wild and crazy. We had a lot of beautiful women running around. We had a lot of guys on writers on staffs of other shows who spent a lot of time in our offices <laughs> waiting for the girls to come in for the casting calls. But, but no drugs. <laughs> Ed Sherlock told me a great story about an episode that you did of Love American Style with your brother. Oh, yes, my favorite episode. We played uh, Siamese Twins. Yep. And, uh, and uh, one of the few episodes I have, personally, because there was no video tape in those days. Uh, but the story about it was unique, too, because uh, I, I came in to work one morning. I, know, I, get, I used to get around 9, 9.30, and the production manager came in at 10, and he said, we have a big problem. I said, what? He said, well, we're sh- shooting this episode, and we're probably going to be through about one or two in the afternoon. He said, I've got a crew till six tonight. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, you have a short show you can shoot. And I said, no, but give me 10 minutes. So um, I remember Jerry Belson had recently told me a story that he wasn't, hadn't done anything with. But I thought that, and I said, you know that story about the Siamese twins? Yeah. He said, I, I want to buy it. He said, fine. So I then called in the writing staff. Which we had six writers. And I pitched them the story. And I said, give me a one-day episode. And, you know, um, two Siamese, two boys Siamese are looking for dates. They travel the world looking for women, and they finally uh, meet a pair of girl Siamese. That's it. Go. I said, think of every Siamese twin joke you ever heard, and bring me a script. Then I called my brother, and I said, what are you doing today? He said, no, I just have a date with my psychiatrist. I said, good, because this afternoon we're going to play Siamese twins. We got uh, there were two actresses who were sisters of the production manager, and uh, we got them to be the two girls. And Jim Parker, my partner, became the director. And uh, we ran around the lot because there were other shows shooting. We found us an old manic set that nobody was using. So we said, okay, we'll shoot it here. And uh, we got together with the, the writers around four, and they gave me the script. We read it, we made a few changes. Great, and, and we were on stage by around five five thirty. Shot till seven thirty, and we had a show. Now we never, we usually had to clear everything with the network, and we didn't have time. And so we called them and said, "We're doing this." And they said, "Oh, you can't do that. That's that's revolting. Siamese twins. It's." We don't want that on the air. It was anything. It wasn't anything sexual. It was, they didn't like the idea of doing something. So, well, we've already shot it. We're going to show it. 
So we it went on the air, but it was never syndicated. They never about it in the syndication package. Um, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, and we had a ball. And the fact that we did it all in one day, wrote it and cast it and shot it, uh, was was unique. We'd never done that before or since. It was a wonderful cast that uh, I really enjoyed working on the show. Uh, and what most people don't remember, because she wasn't with the cast from the beginning, but about midway through the season, yeah. Sally Fields came in the show. Right. And she was also very good. And, and uh, Michael Constantine was. He was, he was very funny. He was the glue that made the show work. But it was fun to do. That show, I wish, because they're streaming everything, they should just stream everything that Gary Marshall did. They should have a channel. A cha- he should have his own channel. Right, he should have a channel, and Norman Lear should have a channel, and then you just show right. all their stuff. Right, right. No, because Gary, I knew Gary before he was a writer. I met him when I was doing Anne Frank. Uh, we met at a party in New York. We were, you know, I was 19 or 20, and he was about the same. He was working as a copy boy at the New York Daily News. Mm. Uh, that's how we met, and we stayed friends, and we both went off in the army and came back and and, and stayed friends up until the time he passed away. And I'm still very close to his daughter, Kathleen. Yeah, he, everything, I mean, he, uh, there's a lot of stuff that he did that no one will ever see again, like the Joey Bishop, you know. Although you're going to tell me that's probably streaming somewhere. Joey Bishop's show is on Antenna TV. <laughs> that's actually airing. Wow. But that is my, okay. that's the first story in my, in my memoirs. I'm opening my book with a story about the definition of an actor in Hollywood. They did an episode. And, and Gary's the one that told me the story because he was there. Joey was playing, he, he, he was playing himself, of course, but he was also playing this other character, his twin brother, who comes to visit. And so he's playing both parts. By the, they start on Monday, by Wednesday, he's tearing the script up, tearing, throwing things. He's furious because his brother has all the jokes. <clears throat> and, and when they rewrote the show, and of course, and he had the last line, so they had to give Joey the last line. And his sidekick were get, was getting more laughs in the first season, so they fired him. Probably. Guy Marks. Guy Marks, some one yeah. of those, Somebody like that, one of those comments. Yeah, uh, he was a miserable. And it's because of him that I started writing, because I... Uh, not a, a writer, uh, as explained, I went to Hollywood, I was working executive jobs, and I was working, a uh, little side note, I was working for the first pay TV company uh, in America, or maybe in the world, called STV, Subscription Television, that had been started by Pat Weaver, the guy who run NBC, created The Tonight Show, The Today Show, quite a guy, and um, and it was, it was, it, we had the Dodger at home games and, you know, it was starting to happen, but the theater owners of California, 
got an initiative on the ballot to outlaw pay TV. And it passed. And so we were suddenly closed. We were out of a job. Now, a couple of years later, they discovered, I mean, they realized it was unconstitutional, but by then we were, we were long gone. So I was out of a job. My wife was pregnant, had two kids already, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So Jerry and Gary had an office on Sunset Strip, and they shared it with this other comedy team, Carl Kleinschmidt and Dale McRaven, who I knew because I was there, I had been their first agent. One of my jobs had been being a writer's agent. So they said, Oh, come and you can use, we got an extra office. You can use that to make your calls. And I was there one day. It was the Friday. Everybody had left for the weekend. And I'm sitting there trying to think, who can I call? Because uh, it was already December. Nobody, everybody was going on vacation. And Dale McRaven comes in because he lived across the street and to get something. And he said, Oh, uh, listen, can you write some jokes? I said, no, I can't write jokes. I never written, I never written anything. And I've certainly never written a joke. He said, I said, why? He said, well, we have to do this roast for this guy and we can't do it because Joey has just hit us with another rewrite. Joey Bishop, they were on that show. And we're going to have to work all weekend on this script. So we need to get jokes for this roast. He said, so let me tell you what we need. And he told me that. Breakfast and he left. So I'm sitting there and I think, well, I have nothing else to do. I might as well. I, mean, I didn't know I could write a joke. But I put a piece of paper in the typewriter. And after a couple hours, I had a page full of what I guessed were jokes. I didn't know. <laughs> I almost tore it up. I thought it was terrible. But I left him a copy. And I took a copy home and I showed my wife. She said, well, we know one thing. You're not a comedy writer. <laughs> so I forgot about it. And But I went in Monday and he left me a note. And he said, we loved your jokes. We'll pay you when we see you. And then he told Gary and showed Gary. And that's when Gary came to me and said, hey, you want to be a comedy writer? So if Joey Bishop hadn't made those guys do a weekend rewrite, God knows where I'd be. <laughs> just want to ask you about a couple. Did you write the Mary Kate and Ashley home videos? I did write uh, it. Two, right? Well, it was an episode. I wrote one that was a TV special. Um, and then uh, where they go on a cruise. I don't remember the story. The two of them went on a cruise. Right. And I wrote the first draft. And I, I got sure. I think I shared credit. But then I got uh, a TV movie that I had written got an order to go to film. So I had to leave that project and go to Canada to produce this movie. So somebody else did the second draft and actually directed it. I don't, I can't remember his name. Is there anybody else's name on there? I didn't put anybody else's name. Oh. No, uh, and, and it was a pleasant experience. I mean, I never met them. Uh, and they were pretty young at that point. Was the movie Between Love and Honor? I did. That was a dramatic piece. Um, it was based on a true story. I There was this guy who had been a cop, a New York PD, and uh, he had this really good story, and there were a lot of people who wanted to do it. And I got it because I had been in law enforcement. I had been reserved. Officer for 25 years with the 
Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So he liked the fact that I had law enforcement background. So I wrote this movie and it was um, interesting. Before he could give me the rights to do the movie, he had to go have a sit down with the Gambino family uh, because that's who was involved in the movie. He had been an under, young guy. He was hired as an undercover cop. Never went through the academy. They kept him undercover so nobody, because they wanted him to uh, be undercover do, doing drug dealing. He was trying to catch cops stealing drugs. But then he went, moved over, and they he knew somebody who was in the Gambino family. He'd grown up with the neighborhood, and they wanted him to infiltrate the Gambino family. And so through this other guy, he got in and 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 ended up becoming romantically involved with Carlo Gambino's goddaughter. And was the driver in the Joey Gallo hit? Who's driving the getaway? That was at Spark Steakhouse. No, it was at. Um, that was another gangster. Uh, this was at uh, Umberto's Clam House. Okay, I would get those two confused. <laughs> yeah, but there was. Yeah, I forget. I think the guy that succeeded Gambino got bumped off by. Uh, um, who was the Teflon Don? He was the guy who ordered the hit on the current head of the Gambino family, and that was at the Sparks Steakhouse. Yeah. A little trivia I know about that is, you know who was supposed to be at the Sparks Steakhouse with him that night? No. David Steinberg. Oh. oh. Well, I'll tell you who was with um, uh, Crazy Joey Gallo when he got hit. Uh just before he, he went there, they were together. Was um, the actor, uh, but a big, a big actor. They'd been at the uh, at the Copacabana together, celebrating uh, Gallo's birthday. And uh, and Gallo left, and he and his wife, somebody else, went down to Alberto's. Anyway, that was it. Was a fun movie. We shot it. We I, well, I wrote it, and then. It sat there at CBS for a couple of years. I thought they were never going to make it. That's why it was such a surprise. I take it this other job. Suddenly I get a call saying, you got to come to Vancouver. We're, we're going to shoot the movie here. So uh, the only problem, we shot it in Vancouver, and it was mostly shot outdoors in, in December. It's not that nice. I mean, one man, it was, it was uh, Toronto, not Vancouver, Toronto. It was, Jerry Orbach. Jerry Orbach. That's who it was. He was he was good friends with uh, Joey Gallo. They were at a performance of Peter Lemon Jello. I just looked it up. Oh. With Don Rickles also. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He and then he left and went to Sparks. Yeah. Yeah. And my friend uh, the NYPD basically sacrificed him uh, because the, they wanted Gallo killed. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. And sure, fun. That, thanks, and I can't wait to read that memoir. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, 
six of us. Got another minute? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. There were six of us who had started off at that office on Sunset. Uh, it was Gary and Jerry in one office, and Carl Kleinschmidt and Dale McRaven in another office. That we had yeah, for a while the office in between. And so every we when we first started there, we we took a picture together, and we, so we went back every five years and took a picture. Um, and the last picture we took was. 2015, and we were supposed to take one last year, but of course, that was not possible. And now there are only three of us left, and the other two are very ill. So, we call ourselves the Sunset Six. But uh, we all started out basically together, and it all ended up doing very well. Turned out. If there's ever a time when people can get together for lunch again, we'll, we'll meet in person. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, so, uh, anyway, thank you. Thank and, you. And will you let me know when it's available to see? Absolutely. You